Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Good to see you, Menlo Church. So glad to be with you this morning. After months of anticipation and one-off messages, we are beginning a journey together where we can have full conversations rather than just kind of week-to-week sound bites. And for some of you, you're going to be so thankful for that. And some of you are going to be like, can you go back to the one-off still, Phil? <laughs> like, that felt better. Um, but it's a little nerve-wracking, to be honest with you. You guys are so uh, thoughtful, so mature, so grounded, and uh, to offer something that is helpful and hopeful for you can be kind of a tall task. But uh, I believe that together, as we open up the pages that God has preserved for thousands of years, we might discover in them uh, this way of Jesus that many of you know, and some of you, maybe you don't yet, but I believe you may soon understand. Now, whether you're joining um, kind of here in the room, or you're at one of our Bay Area campuses, or you're watching online, I want to say a welcome to you. After um, spending the last month at all of our different campuses, it's way easier to envision our campuses worshiping together this morning in San Jose, Saratoga, Mountain View, um, even in San Mateo, and right here in Menlo Park. It is a gift to be able to have all of those pictures in my mind of all the church of Menlo. Over the next two weeks, we're going to spend um, time in kind of a shorter series that I'm calling Warnings in the Waiting, and it's about what it sounds like. See, as a church, we've been waiting for what's next for what feels like a long time, and I get how we can be excited about that. I'm excited about that. But sometimes, the more we anticipate something, the bigger the blind spots can, that can creep into our life as we expect or anticipate it. Think about the most euphoric moments in your life. Think about that moment when you got your first car or when you got your first house or when you got your first office or if you're a student, the first time you went to a dance or went on a date, right? It can cloud your judgment. Those moments, those moments in our life, they offer so much hope, but they can cloud our vision. And I don't want to take away the hope, but I do want to add some vision for all of us along the way. So before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here, never heard me speak, um, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is because this is bigger than all of us. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than you. This is about a vision that the God of the universe has for the world, that this new kingdom might replace the broken kingdoms of this world, and that this new kingdom actually isn't new. It's been around forever, and it's not going anywhere. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, would you humble yourself for just a moment? And go to that God with me. God, thank you so much. Thank you that all of us prodigals needed you. All of us needed your work on our behalf. Would you remind us of that right now? That none of us have graduated from our need for you. That we might graduate into it more fully today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, here's the thing. Sometimes when people ask me what I do for a living, if I know they're skeptical about faith... I will tell them that I'm in sales. <laughs> and I'm not like totally lying, right? Later on in the conversation, it eventually comes up and they'll go like, so what kind of sales? And I say, hope. And that's totally what we do. It's actually what all of us do. It's why we gather together. It's why you tune into a stream. It's because there's a hope that we know we need, even if we aren't sure where to get it. That's why we are gathered even today. And when I was younger, I was actually in sales. I had several different sales jobs, and I was pretty good at them. Usually, the thing that you can do is you can kind of bend the product to the needs of your potential customer. 
But even though that's the case with goods and services, it is not the case with God or serving him, that there is this immutable reality, this unshakable truth of who God is and what he's done for us. But if we're mostly concerned with people buying into faith, sometimes even as Christians, we will change the message for the moment rather than recognizing that maybe the message was made for the moment that we're in and God can move and shape hearts because of it. I believe that's true even today. We're going to talk about two concepts in the next couple weeks, and both of them, uh, both of them come from these words that sometimes we say in church without defining. And I want to define the words up front. I want to describe the blind spot we're going to talk about together this morning, and then I want us to look at three passages uh, that share why we should be concerned with this blind spot. The first word is the word revival. And it's a concentrated work of God to lift an entire area or group out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into the conviction of sin, a desire for submission to Jesus, and a community that is tangibly transformed. And if you're like, where did you get that? Is that a Willard quote? No, that's, I just made that up. So just so you know, if you think, what is revival? That's revival. And there probably aren't very many Christians that would disagree with that or very many Christians that wouldn't want to see that. Wouldn't want to see that in your home or in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in our community, in this region. But the thing is, sometimes we take that word revival and we make it about other people. It's what other people need. It's what that other town needs. It's what that other church needs. Not us. No, no, we don't need that. And that's where our second term comes in. The second term is renewal, which is a concentrated work of God to change the individual or group into greater connection to an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, and a more submitted life to the revealed way of Jesus in the Bible. We need both. And so today, we're going to look at one of the blind spots that can happen and how we think about these concepts. And even if you aren't a Christian, you have experience with what I'm about to talk about. And that is that revival without renewal leads to compromised faith. We will adjust the message to make it more compatible with the moment. So this tendency to other focus our faith, it actually isn't new. It's been around for a couple thousand years. It goes back certainly to the New Testament. And one of the ways that this shows up is hollow gospel, a hollow gospel. Now, one of the things for us, if you don't know this, uh, we just moved here from Colorado. And one of the things that made that move much easier um, is that we could leave Colorado and move here before we had to sell that house. Uh, which was very helpful. And for some of you, I've lost you because you've had to navigate selling a house and starting a new job and moving all at the same time. And so now you're just bitter and angry towards me and I'll pray for you. So, (laughs) but one of the things that made that so easy, right, was that we could actually transition here while all that sort of got done. But because we weren't there anymore, they had to do some stuff in our house to make it look like people still lived there. And it's called staging. It's where they take furniture that is too small for full-sized humans and they put it all throughout the house, right? (laughs) And the whole point is to make the house seem ready to live in, to make it seem larger than it really is. And it can help people envision what layouts of specific rooms might look like. But the the problem is, even though all that is helpful, uh, it can only go so far. You can't stage everything. And so you're always one closed door or one cabinet away from empty. It's hollow. And I wonder in your life, are there places, if you're honest, where your faith feels staged? Where there are words and phrases, activities that all line up, but they don't really help. They're not really doing anything in your life. 
The good news of Jesus is what's called the gospel. And it means that we don't have to live a staged life. It means that we can be honest because what the gospel message is really all about is that the God of the universe loves you and me so much that even though we fell short and fall short, he sent his only son to live a perfect life, to die on our behalf and to come back from the grave so that even today, now 2,000 years later, we could turn from our own way, believe and receive the gift that Jesus has made available and choose to follow him for the rest of our lives and we would experience abundant life today and eternal life waiting. That is the gospel and that's really good news. And when we live a staged life, we surrender access to that actual gospel. See, I wonder if you can relate author and pastor Rich Velotis, he, he warns us of this problem this way. He says, when the essence of the gospel is stripped down to the afterlife or to a glorious but strictly individual personal decision of faith, it's not what Jesus described as the good news about his kingdom come. And predictably, there's no real urgency to see our lives oriented towards a more loving and just way of being in the world. At the core of the gospel, then, is the making right of all things through Jesus. In other words, renewal that God would actually change us. This hollow faith, it isn't new in our moment. It's felt uniquely in our moment, but it's been around for thousands of years. In the first century church, the Apostle Paul, a key leader and church planter, he was cautioning a church in Colossae with this very same thing. He writes it this way. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." See, Paul knows how easily this early church with so much momentum could have been led away by ideas and philosophies that sounded good, but they were hollow. And he's encouraging this group to stay close to Jesus and that they would create this early detection system as they did that to be able to hear and listen for false teaching. See, they were experiencing so much momentum in the first century, even with challenges and persecution all around them, that this early exponential growth, it would have made it easy for them to let the core teaching drift just a little bit to let a little bit more people in, or to let their spiritual practices slip for just a little while so that more people would feel comfortable to come in. And remember this, they didn't have the New Testament so when you pick up a Bible today, it's really a library comprised of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and the New Testament, which was being written as we are discovering it. And so they would have had the Hebrew Scriptures that many of them grew up learning and understanding, pieces of Jesus' ministry often communicated through oral tradition, and letters just like this one. And even they were warned, even they were accountable for the kinds of teaching that they were letting be incorporated into their life. That's always our temptation when we long for revival without renewal. It becomes about others, not what God is doing in us so that others might find him. In the context of this letter, Paul was warning against a version of legalism that looked the part, but it wasn't genuine. He was concerned about this hollow faith that couldn't withstand the pressures of life and wouldn't offer real salvation to people even if they surrendered because it wasn't the true gospel. 
We face the same kinds of pressures today. On the one extreme, it's rules-based faith that has forgotten relationship, and it's about what you say and the stances you take. On the other side, exactly what Paul warned about in human philosophies, there is a version today that we often refer to as progressive Christianity that has no tether to truth or Jesus or the need for personal uh, confession or conviction. We pick legalism or license when actuality Christian liberty is neither one, and that's a problem. As a matter of fact, we often, we often contort Christianity for something that requires no repentance. We don't have to turn from one way of life to a different way of life. No, 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 we, we make them compatible. We seek to baptize our cultural moment into our church traditions, and we require only minor changes to our political, moral, or social tribe. But that is so different than the way of Jesus. Jesus offers you and me a totally restored identity. Your faith, it doesn't have to be a hollow or staged version of something for the sake of God's PR department. It can be messy. You can have questions. You can show just how much still God has to transform in you. That's actually the good news of the gospel, is that he's not scared of you. He's not scared of what needs to happen inside of you. God loves you anyway. I've heard it said around here already that Menlo Church is not a country club for saints, but a hospital for Never forget that. Because the thing is, revival without renewal, it will lead to your compromised faith. If you other your faith, if you push it off for what other people need to think, even though you aren't living any differently, that is always going to leave you hollow. Our second passage about why personal renewal is so important shows us the problem of a shallow gospel. Shows us the problem of a shallow gospel. In Colorado, we lived in a pretty new master-planned community, and if you're unfamiliar with what that means, let me tell you, um, it basically it's a community that they design from the beginning with the end in mind. So all the houses look very, very similar. Um, the trees are all kind of smaller because they've just been recently planted. Uh, the roads are all built pretty large because they know how many houses will eventually be in the area. Uh, so in other words, as I've learned over the last few weeks in California, pretty much the opposite approach of how Northern California was built. <laughs> like, did, was this designed for horses? Like what road am I, you know? But one of the things that really stands out when you're in a community like that is how shallow the soil is for growth. Very close to the surface, you will discover clay that nothing grows in. So whenever you want deeper growth, you actually have to dig up the dirt and replace it with soil so that you can have roots that grow deeper. Everything looks normal on the surface. There are lawns and gardens, some trees, but the longer-term growth, the growth that's really going to be there for decades, it will require deeper nutrients that are currently available in the shallow soil. And a shallow gospel will eventually be unable to feed your comprehensive faith and soul as well. Some of you, that's your story. Your journey with Jesus started off strong, and somewhere along the way, maybe you used to look the part, but nobody knows. It's been a long time since Jesus has ever been allowed to go any deeper into your life. The same author that we were just reading, the Apostle Paul, he wrote two letters in the New Testament of your Bible to a young protege named Timothy who was a pastor at a small church in Ephesus, that we call modern-day Turkey, in the first century. And in the most personal of the two letters, Paul describes the symptoms of this shallow gospel this way. He says, but understand this, 
that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Parents, you want me to repeat that one? (laughs) Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Well, good news for us, none of those people seem to be around anymore, so I think we've pretty well taken care of that. See, in the first century, the earliest followers of Jesus, they were convinced that they were living in the last days. And while in one sense they were, they were anticipating what they didn't know at the time would be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the system by which many Jewish people had lived their entire life changing radically, we are now still 2,000 years later waiting for the return of Jesus. Now, Paul is describing something to be on alert for, something to avoid. And we live in a cultural moment where we are looking at and taking in things all the time, where the algorithms behind them incentivize the very thing we were just told to be aware of, to be cautious of, to avoid. But it sounds like something we see every day, doesn't it? Over the course of the last half century, we have watched our world become increasingly individualistic, narcissistic, and consumeristic. And here's the pitch. The pitch from the world, the pitch from the post-Christian culture that we all live in is this. You will be liberated. You will be liberated from this oppressive moral vision. You will be liberated from this closed-minded view of life. But how is that going? Author and pastor John Mark Comer, he raises the concern this way. He says, self is the new God, the new spiritual authority, the new morality. But this puts a crushing weight on the self, one it was never designed to bear. It must discover itself, become itself, stay true to itself, justify itself, make itself happy, perform and defend its fragile identity. Isn't that just tiring to think about? But that's the ideological choice. Will you ask your broken, fragile self to hold the weight of your identity or the God who made you? See, this cultural revolution that promises us revival without renewal through a shallow gospel, it doesn't seem to be liberating anyone to the kind of flourishing that Jesus died to provide. The vision of our culture actually leaves us floundering, not flourishing, into the exact kinds of people and characteristics that Paul was warning Timothy about 2,000 years ago. Lovers of ourselves, our money, arrogant, prideful, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, no self-control, brutal. The list is so overwhelming because if we're honest, the scariest part is we don't have to get very far into that list to find ourselves. And we live in a culture that justifies and justifies and says it's okay and it's not a big deal. And the good news of the gospel is that you can be honest even where those shortcomings are. Not that they wouldn't be changed, but that God could change them in you. The more that we show up on that list, the more we see ourselves on that list, the more we may be asking for a revival in our culture while avoiding renewal in our own lives. What are the warnings that you are avoiding in yourself or in those closest to you and why? Where have you let the excuses of our culture seep in? Where has your faith been compromised because you've tried to make it compatible with a culture it cannot be? See, remember, Christian liberty, it isn't running to legalism or license. 
It's about embracing a deeper connection to Jesus in our lives so that he can transform us through the changed lives and bless the world around us. It takes both renewal and revival. A hollow gospel is revealed in time, but a shallow gospel is revealed in turmoil, and turmoil will always come. Challenges in our life will always lean in. What challenges have you faced maybe in the last week where you have seen and discovered a shallow gospel somewhere inside of you, where you are just unwilling to be honest? There are habits of pursuing Jesus that have been surrendered to self-habits, habits that you know aren't helping you, hang-ups that you know are actually holding you back. Maybe for you this week it was a fight with your spouse. It was a conflict with a friend. Maybe for you it was layoff news at work. And rather than running to God because of the renewal he is doing inside of you, you ran from God to behaviors that helped you numb the pain. See, we don't want a faith that forces us to fake it when things are hard. We want our faith in Jesus to help us endure present suffering in light of future hope. That's what Jesus can do. He gives us this understanding that even though we live in a culture that promises hope without God, what we know, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that that hope is only found in God because of the person of Jesus. And every time you abandon him, towards the patterns of this world, towards your own habits and hang-ups and addictions, you will discover you are walking away from the very hope that you want. See, remember, when we were merely externalizing our faith in our lives, it becomes something it was never meant to be. And eventually, we will manipulate our vision of following Jesus. Because when we long for revival without renewal, it leads to compromised faith for all of us, no matter how long you've been following Jesus. Finally, we're going to look at Paul's picture on the other side of the coin with the true gospel, what it actually means to lean into something that doesn't change. It's fun to watch our kids all grow into different stages when you can kind of remember yourself uh, in those stages. We have kids from 13 down to 3, and um, it's really fun to be able to experience that. Uh, our kids play this game Mario Party, you know that game, um, and uh, our three-year-old, Wells, he loves that he plays Mario. Now, I'll tell you this, we'll get more into it later. He's not actually playing the game, but we'll keep that between us. <laughs> he loves Mario Party, and he will passionately ask Alyssa and I all the time, he'll say, can I play Mario? And he doesn't say forever, he's three, so he says, can I play Mario Foyeva? That's what he says, just over and over and over again, just badging, badgering you down until you finally relent. And I remember that feeling. I remember playing Mario. Now, the version of Mario that I played, our kids would not even be able to recognize the characters on because the graphics were so bad, right? But it's fun. The game looks way different when I was a kid, but it's this timeless franchise that's been around for 30 plus years. And it brings back memories every time I watch my kids play it, every time I watch Alyssa, my wife, or our oldest Grayer be really competitive while they play it. It's cute. And things that kind of stand the test of time, they stand out because so much in our culture doesn't stay in the test of time. We live in a fast-paced moment where we are so easy to forget the things that are actually timeless, things that don't go out of style or lose their purpose, like Mario or the gospel, like both those, both those things. <laughs> We're going to look at one more snapshot from Paul, though, in a letter that he wrote to a struggling church in the first century. 
Paul was never worried about repeating himself, especially as it related to the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And he shares it this way. He says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel that doesn't change. It was a gospel that was predicted for centuries before it came into the plan of Jesus' earthly ministry, and it is the gospel that now thousands of years later still offers hope to a hurting and dying world. It's the one we still believe today. And Paul's picture here is that we don't graduate from this message. We don't get better and go, well, I'm glad that was a prayer I got to pray. I'm glad that was something that happened that day. No, no, it's something we graduate into. We grow in our awareness of our need for that grace on an even deeper layer like an onion over the course of our lives. One of the reasons that we long for revival without renewal is because we have become so sophisticated that this feels too simple. But that's the beauty of it. See, Paul anticipates that very objection, and he encounters it earlier in the same letter. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And that's our problem, isn't it, Menlo Church? That's the challenge for some of you, to let the simple reality, the simple moments of God remind you of your simplicity of your weakness, that as smart as you think you are, as strong as you think you are, that the gospel calls you to surrender to a God who is infinitely smarter, infinitely stronger, that you and I could never achieve more forgiveness, that we could never experience greater grace through our effort. That's the whole point of it. It takes Jesus. Some of you, you have been Christians longer than I have been alive. You feel like you were Christian fetuses, right? But there is still this work that God is doing in you because if you still have a pulse, God still has a plan to grow you and to develop you and to stretch you and to renew you. The good news of Jesus is that this timeless gospel always has new and beautiful dimensions to it. Protestant reformer John Calvin put it this way. He says, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Not a shallow faith, not a hollow faith, but it takes up all of who we are. Where has your desire for others to know this gospel in revival superseded your desire that you might be renewed in it? Where has a hollow or shallow faith crept in over time? And what do you need to do for that to change? If you're waiting for a version of biblical faith that is culturally compatible, you will be waiting a long time. In the West, we have confused a Judeo-Christian ethic for biblical Christianity. And because of that, what we have done over the course of the last several decades is as cultural norms have shifted, so has our theology. But it doesn't have to. There is a call back to what it means to follow Jesus. For the rest of the world, and most of the last 2,000 years, faithful followers of Jesus always found ways to be full of grace and truth in culturally engaging ways, even when it was difficult, even when they faced persecution for doing it. 
even when the way of Jesus was not the way of the culture around them. That's the point, that Jesus' way is actually different, that people can see that and see the invitation to that and this flourishing kind of life. I told you about our three-year-old Wells playing Mario. Now, I'm going I'm to tell you a secret. If you're watching online, you're one of our campuses, or here with me in Menlo Park, we're all going to keep this secret from my three-year-old, okay? So you can play four players on Mario Party. We have five controllers. Our fifth controller doesn't work, but Wells doesn't know that. And the problem is, like, if you have a small child, he would pull up the menus and he would wreak havoc on it. And so he just plays, like, he plays with this non-functional controller, and he'll get mad like he's winning or, or get excited that he's winning, get mad that he's losing. He just is in it. And sometimes I think that that lack of control that he doesn't realize is closer to my lack of control that I don't realize than I feel comfortable with. How many situations in your life are you holding a non-functional controller to getting mad at God? See, I think this picture of what it means to relinquish control in our life is really helpful. Influential 19th century preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the Christian should work as if it all depended on them and pray as if it all depended on God. Is that how your life looks? Or somewhere along the way, have you grabbed the controller? God, I got this. Don't worry about it. That's what revival without renewal will always do. And it's such good news that grace should actually fuel our effort, but we can understand it's actually God doing the work. Our effort should never lead us to confuse our role. The renewal that I'm calling you to consider, that I believe God is calling all of us to consider, that we're going to dive more into next week, it isn't empowered by you or me. And you can rest in the power that Jesus gives you. That's such good news. If you're thinking maybe right now about an area of life that you've been avoiding because you think you can't change it, it's too big, it's been around for too long, good news, you're right. Better news, Jesus knows that too. And he wants to provide a path back to you, a path of real change. And so how do you maybe this week need to set down the non-functional controller of your life and let Jesus speak more directly to what needs to change because of it. Maybe it's taking a real day off of work this week. Maybe it's putting your phone away for a minute. Maybe it's letting your day start with time in the Bible or talking to God like we've been talking about for a few weeks here at Menlo. Even if you've never done it before, even if it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's finding a way to be financially generous to release the hold or loosen the hold of materialism in your life. But trusting God with small steps of releasing control can be so incredibly powerful. And these steps are not merely habit replacement. We live in a culture that constantly calls you to habit replacement. We call it New Year's resolutions, and you've already, most of you, failed yours, right? Like, we know this part doesn't work. It's about trusting Jesus over and over in our life through small steps of surrender. We have tremendous work in front of us, Menlo Church. But there's something that I want you to think about as we grow together in the coming months, and it's called the Stockdale Paradox. See, when we think about optimist and pessimist, optimists, they're overly optimistic. They have this view of the world that is not realistic, and then they get disappointed and quit. Pessimists, as far as I can tell, are so down on the world, they've quit before they started. Those are kind of our two options sometimes it feels like. 
But the Stockdale Paradox says, you know what? There is this unbelievable picture and hope in front of us, and we have to be honest about the brutal realities that we face to get there. It's only when we're honest about what's in front of us and we believe for the future that's on the other side that we can experience it together. That's true for us as a community. That's true for you as an individual, whether you know Jesus yet or not. So before we respond and worship together, I want to remind each and every person in this room at any of our campuses watching online, um, I am not the savior of Menlo Church. He never left. We are not here today to make my name great. God forbid. We are not here to make the name of Menlo Church great. We are here to make the name of Jesus known that people could experience his greatness in their lives. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the timeless truths that you offer to us in it. Thank you, that God, that, that you can shape us by it. And that, God, there's something by your spirit and power that for someone that's been following you for days and someone that's been following you for decades, they can walk out of this place changed because of. Would you do that for us now? Even as we continue to sing to you, to worship you, and to make your name known in the Bay Area and beyond. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.